Let's pray. Our holy God, your word tells us that how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And that phrase, good and pleasant, seems like an understatement. Still woefully inadequate description of what happens when you by your spirit show up and begin to thaw tensions and to deconstruct divisions and to enable your people to move forward together in unity. Where believers do dwell together in unity, it is obvious that you attend and even grant your blessing. Reminded this morning that no one has done more to secure the unity of the church than you. Lord Jesus, no one is praying more for the unity of the church than you. And Lord Jesus, no one is more glorified by our unity than you. And so continue to make us one. Help us even by your word allow our hearts to be changed. Convict us, and then lead us to walk in repentance, we pray. Use this sermon to those ends. And so do far more with it than, than I ever could for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Are humans tribal by nature? A tribe is a social group defined by its culture or its language or its way of life. And so tribal identity can refer to one's connection with their tribe, one's connection with a tribe based on shared values, shared traditions. A quick Google search, not now but later, will reveal that there are a lot of opinions about the answer to that question. Are humans tribal? And I believe the recent landscape of our world has brought this issue to the forefront. Because the air that we breathe today is partisan. The air that we breathe today is divided. Think about all of the things that there are to disagree with others about. I mean, I literally this week started writing down and I thought, why am I doing this? Like, I, you can disagree with others about everything. About sports, about vehicle manufacturers, about politics, about social issues, about educational choices, about child-raising theories, about public health policies, and the list could go on and on. In my research, this is what one article said. Humans are tribal creatures. Wanting to identify with the tribe is arguably still a very important basic part of what it means to be human. It's worth noting that in recent days, a growing trend has emerged of even prioritizing being admired by one's own tribe over, uh, over and above holding to objectively true facts. Think about that. There's a growing trend to hold on to, to falsehood in order 
to be approved by your tribe. We conclude that tribal bias is a natural and nearly indestructible feature of humanity, and no group is immune. I wonder if you agree with that this morning. And maybe the more central question for us this morning is not do we believe humans are tribal, but what happens when those tribal-like tendencies flare up within the church? I mean, really, if you look around and you consider the climate of our day, the question would be, is there any hope for our culture? Maybe even, is there any hope for the church? Well, it's with this question that in mind that we turn to our second sermon in our First Corinthians sermon series that we began last week. And so I'd invite you, if you've not yet opened your Bibles, to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 10. Our, our modern day problems of divisions and factions and tribes, those were prevalent, uh, prevalent, prevalent in Paul's day. And so what you are facing in the culture in which you live, this is not novel. In fact, it was rampant in Paul's day, and as we will see, it was rampant inside the church. As we noted last week, the inside of this church at Corinth sadly mirrored the outside culture too much. The church was situated in a status-obsessed city, and it still had a lot of Corinth in their hearts. They had been saved out of the world but they still bore the marks of that world. And those city values were beginning to seep into the church in a way that compromised their Jesus-appointed witness to the world. That happens every time cultural values seep into the church. The Jesus-appointed witness of the church Is hindered. But more than just their external witness, these divisions threaten the blood bought unity and fellowship within the church. And so, Paul, as we saw last week, he began this letter to these Corinthian believers with this affectionate appeal for them to remember what God had done for them, to remember that God was faithful. And he wastes no time after that introduction to raise the main issue in this letter, namely that the church's unity showcases the gospel's power. The unity of the church showcases the power of the gospel. We'll consider three points in Paul's arguments in our passage today that I trust will help us have a proper understanding of this text. And so we'll begin with number one. Unity in the church is required. Unity in the church is required. Look back at verse 10. Again, as we read, it's helpful to just remember this isn't just one man's writings. The author inspired by God himself through his Holy Spirit. And so listen to what God says in verse 10. 
Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you may, you may you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Many commentators believe that verse 10 really does serve as a window into the whole letter, a thesis statement, really about the whole letter. And the now, he begins now. Now serves to link the introduction of the letter, verses 1 through 9, to this section of the letter. It's as if Paul was saying, in light of God's faithfulness and in light of the gracious work of God in your life, now I exhort you in light of that, don't divorce the introduction to this exhortation. They are meant to be wed together. Paul exhorts these Christians. Maybe your translation reads appeals. Like I appeal to you, I exhort you. And I'm thinking, if this is such importance, like, why not demand? Like, why does Paul not say, I demand that you do this? Again, commentator Gordon Fee helpfully notes, Paul exhorts slash appeals and doesn't demand so that they would conform their behavior to the gospel and not to the law. That their behavior would be a response not to what they must do, but a response to what Christ has done. Paul will address a lot of external behaviors in this letter. And it's helpful for us to know that he's not merely after modifying those behaviors. He's after an internal heart change that will lead to different behaviors. I just think even as you think about the places in your life where you are in need of growth, you will be prone to turn to a list of demands or you will be prone to turn to the grace of God and then be exhorted. I would just plead with you. There is a reason the Christian life is not do this and then. It's he has done and now. Notice what he evokes. It's not just that I am exhorting you, but he's exhorting, how? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He evokes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying on the basis of Jesus' authority, on the basis of his power, I am exhorting you. I am speaking on behalf of this one who has sent me. And so what is it that he exhorts? What is the appeal? Well, it's stated three times in verse 10. It's stated positively, it's stated negatively, and then it's stated positively again. Again, look at the text. Now, I exhort you, I'm appealing to you, in light of all that God has done through Christ and in Christ's name, what? that you all agree, positive, there be no divisions among you, negative, and that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, positive. He exhorts them to agree. 
He exhorts them to be at peace with one another. He exhorts them to make up the differences. The word literally means he exhorts them to say the same thing. If you look down in verse 12, I think you can begin to see why he's exhorting them to agree to say the same thing. Because the church has been divided by people who are saying different things. He's calling for this common declaration of allegiance. And when he states it negatively, he says, let there be no divisions among you. The word there, uh, the schisma, it, it's where we get our word for, for, for schism. And yet it's not just merely this kind of partitioning off, this dividing of groups. No, it's actually a violent word that, that conjures up the image of something being torn or ripped and in fact, Paul will use this word throughout this letter in reference to the church being the body of Christ. And so what you should hear here is not, hey, don't portion off into groups who disagree. What you should hear is Paul saying, there should be no ripping and tearing of the body. And then again, he states positively, be made complete by being united in mind and judgment with others. Be made complete. It's the word that's used about mending nets that are broken or setting the bone that has been broken. I mean, just think of the image here that Paul, like don't rip the body apart. In fact, work to set the bones back in place properly. Like we are to be united. We are to be healthy. Do we grasp what Paul desires for this church? Like of all of the issues to address, and in fact, as we start going through this letter, perhaps you may be surprised at times to go, wait, this was going on? Wait, this was going on in this church, and Paul begins with unity? I believe because the church's unity is crucial to every issue that's happening in the life of this church. It's crucial to the church's witness. It's crucial to the glory of Christ. And if we dig deep enough in God's word, I think what we begin to see is unity among the church was of supreme importance to Paul because unity of the church was of supreme importance to Jesus. I mean, I trust that Paul had received from the other apostles and the disciples, even the words of Jesus in a passage that has been referenced several times in this service already, John chapter 17. Jesus praying for his disciples. I mean, again, you just think this is some of the last words that are recorded before Jesus dies. And just listen again. John chapter 17, verse 21. He's praying, not just for those that were there, but for also those who believe in me through them, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you 
that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So understand the basis of Jesus' prayer for unity is not merely just so there's a good looking product that we can put out there. No, Jesus is saying, I know a unity with you, Father. Like there is a perfect unity in the Godhead. It has so satisfied the son that he says, I pray that all who trust in you would be so satisfied with who you are and then by extension, who they now are in you because of you. He continues, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. If you are in Christ, you share a glory that the Father has given the Son. Like there is coming a day. If you are in Christ, you will breathe your last, your, your last and you will be more convinced than ever before that you are loved like this. That you have been given a glory that the Father shares with the Son. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, that you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although, or, or, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me, that I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I mean, you just want to have your heart wrecked thinking about what your union with Christ has afforded you? Go back and read this prayer. But the beautiful thing about this prayer is that it's not merely an individual blessing. Like your union with Christ is meant to have massive ramifications with your relationships with others. Like there is to be a unity among the church so that when the world watches the unity among us, they would not think, yep, you know, just like every other group in our, in our world in this culture. But they would be dumbfounded, aghast, that there is a unity like this. They would say, oh, like, how do we get that? And the church's privilege is to point to the unity of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and Him sharing with us what He has been enjoying with Himself forever. It's how the world will come to believe that he is Lord. Do you view the unity of the church that way? That which is important to Jesus must be important to his followers. And so I, I just want you to, to hear based on the word of God. The Bible doesn't know a category for being serious about Jesus while disregarding the unity of the church. So if you're here and you're like, hey, I'm a big Jesus guy, but really not much of a unity of the church guy. I just want you to know, if you're not a big unity of the church guy, you can't be a big Jesus guy. And I would love to have a conversation 
if you think, actually, you can. Jesus spared no expense to demonstrate his love for his bride. I would encourage you even to read Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul will say, like, make my joy complete, Philippian church, by being united. Even thinking about Psalm 133, Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I mean, the blessing just flows down like oil running off of Aaron's beard. Like, who doesn't love a good beard oil? <laughs> I, not the purpose of that, but you get the idea. There is this overwhelming, an overwhelming blessing that just flows down and saturates everything about God's people when they dwell together in unity. Paul isn't exhorting these Christians to some groupthink uniformity. And, and so it would serve us to, to be clear about what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Paul isn't trying to get this church to agree on uh, who had the best grilled fish in Corinth. Right? Paul's not saying on everything we can agree on, we should agree on everything. No, he wants them to be united in how they see themselves and how they see others in the church. Like That's what he's laboring for. And so with that exhortation in mind, Paul wants them to see themselves as bone setters, as menders, not as butchers who are violently tearing the body of Christ apart into divisions. Uh, unity is not Paul's only priority. Uh, just read the letter of Galatians, read other letters, read the rest of this letter. Paul will call for sharp division when, when people are teaching or saying or living in untrue ways about Jesus. It's agreement on what matters most. I mean, even later in this letter, Paul will say, uh, let's take an example like meat sacrificed to idols at the temple. He says we don't have to agree on that, but we do have to agree to main, remain united in our disagreements. As we think about this call for unity, maybe think less about, okay, so what can we talk about as a church? No, that's not what he's saying. Instead, maybe think, how ought we talk and see one another in the church? Like, that's the aim. Each member of this church has opinions and convictions about any host of things. And I want to say, that is a good thing. So we shouldn't read Paul and sort of think, all right, so Paul is just telling us to check our convictions at the door, step in, and let's just group think together. Whatever, whatever we think is best, that's just what we do. No, no, no. I, convictions informed by Scripture, opinions informed by Scripture, those are commended. We encourage that. But that should not be pursued in a way that tears and rips the body apart. And so Covenant Life Church, if you're a member here, we must know together what we need to agree on, and then also we must know what we don't have to agree on. 
And so if you want help here, I would just say, go back and read through our church's statement of faith. And if you're finding yourself disagreeing at a lot of points with members of this church, I would just say, go back to the statement of faith. Are your disagreements based there? And it's not that it's not valid if it's not based there, but I do think it's a starting point. This is what we've covenanted together to say we must agree in order to see unity preserved in this church. Which I think at least gives pause to say every other issue, maybe. Maybe I can still be united while yet disagreeing. So maybe a few helps for us this week to uphold what Jesus prays for in John 17. Again, if you're a member of this church, I just want you to hear me say, it is your personal responsibility to portray and to promote the unity of the church. Like, it is your personal responsibility. And so I would just, I would encourage you to consider working and protecting this unity by guarding what goes into your heart and mind. Like, make sure that what you're consuming passes through some filter of unity. Like, I, I just, good questions to consider is what you're consuming is it making it easier or harder for you to stay united with other Christians? The things that matter to you, are those things that you could easily talk with or talk about to someone who is older than you, someone who is in a different socioeconomic status than you, for someone who's on the other side of a political party aisle than you? And what, when, and what do we do when we know of and we hear about unresolved conflict among other Christians, other members in the church? Are you a peacemaker? Like, are you a bone setter? Satan loves to divide churches. A divided church is immobilized in its mission. I read this this week, and I thought this was a helpful way to put it. Satan knows he can do nothing about the product line of the church. It's always Jesus and his beauty. He can't touch that. But Satan does try to hijack the delivery system. And so work to be strategic about who you spend your time with. Is your dinner table... Are your coffee meetings, are your lunch appointments, are they a highlighter for unity? Like, think about that. Every member. Is your dining room table, are your coffee meetings, are your lunches, is it a, are, are they highlighters for unity? Fervently and expectantly pray for unity. And I'm so thankful just to, trace evidences of God's grace over the past several years where a lot has been working against the church, I am so thankful to God for the level of unity that he has brought about among us. Covenant Life, may we excel still more in this area. Unity isn't the only priority for a God-honoring, Jesus-treasuring church, but it is a central one.
And so let me encourage you to consider your working and praying for unity as one of the main ways that you will serve this church family. Brings us to number two. Division in the church is to be renounced. Division in the church is to be renounced. So unity in the church is required. Division in the church is to be renounced. We see this in verses 11 through 16. The report about the Corinthian disunity has reached Paul through the reports of Chloe's people. We don't know much about Chloe or her people. Many believe, since Paul is writing from Ephesus, that Chloe and or her people would have been members of the church there in Ephesus. This is what we can know at some level. There was a trust and an awareness of Chloe and her people with the church at Corinth. Whenever word would have gotten back to Paul for, about their quarreling, and they would have heard that it came from Chloe and her people, it would have been a trusted source. Verse 12 actually clues us more into this pressing matter. Now, I mean this. He's kind of sub-explaining what he's heard the quarreling is about. I mean this, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. The church was divided over their allegiance to men. Their tribal tendencies are on full display here. These splits, these tears, are not divisions of doctrine. And how do we know that? Because Paul would believe that he was giving himself to a ministry of faithful doctrine, and he doesn't side with those who are saying, hey, I'm of Paul. The appeal is that they all take the same side by laying down their insatiable hunger for one-upmanship. Oh, man, Paul is so good. You think Paul's good? Let's talk about Apollos. Why are we going to talk about Paul or Apollos? You remember Peter? Why are we talking about Paul, Peter, or Apollos? I rolled Jesus. At the root of the desire, it's this longing to be better than. To be seen as better than. And that is an that is an insidious monster that the Bible calls pride. John Piper says, Pride is the presumption that we can be happy without depending on God as the source of our happiness and without caring if others find their happiness in God. Pride is the pursuit of happiness anywhere but in the glory of God and the good of other people. C.J. Mahaney says, Pride is contending for supremacy with God and lifting up our hearts against Him. Contending for supremacy with God and lifting up our hearts against Him. C.S. Lewis wrote, God hates pride. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. So 
So how do we assess what is actually happening in this church? Like, we will have division whenever anything is more important to us than Jesus. Like in the church, we are to be this countercultural people who come together and who say, the most important thing about me is Christ. And to stand shoulder to shoulder with someone else who could disagree with us on almost everything else, but say, the most important thing about me is Christ. And yet, what do we see unfolding in Corinth? Give me Paul. No, 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 no. Give me Cephas. No, no, no. Give me Apollos. In the Corinthian church, it had become more important for them to identify with a man than it did to identify with Christ. They identified with Paul, who was the founder of the church, who was the well-known missionary. They identified with Apollos, who followed Paul in the church at Corinth. Acts 18 tells us that he was a remarkable preacher. Well, you compare that remarkable, gifted eloquence of Apollos' preaching with Paul's weak preaching, you see how then you could begin to say, ah, ah, if Paul's preaching today, I'm not coming. Like, I just want to hear from Apollos. And then Peter, Cephas, a legend for his, bold, his boldness and his usefulness in the early days of the church. And then there was either this Christ group, who sort of was the trump card group. Well, if you're him and you're him and you're him, well, hey, I'm better because I'm Jesus. Like, that's my group. Or some commentators think this is Paul's timely sarcasm on display. Either way, the way that the verse, verse 12, is constructed, the emphasis lies not over the people's names. The emphasis lies over the I. Like Paul could have said, they're saying, I, have a, I am of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. But he repeats it. No, I am of this, and I am of this, and I am of this, and I am of this. The divisions in the church centered around identification with what these men said. These, these divisions centered around me, the individual, I. And so Paul begins to make his, case, make his case clear that the solution for their division was focusing on what Christ had done. That's what he will do. Listen to the questions of verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm so thankful for what Paul does here. I, I'm glad he doesn't say, Apollos wasn't crucified, was he? For you? Have you been baptized in the name of Peter? No, he's actually going after the people that are using his platform as divisions with other workers in the kingdom. He says, Christ wasn't divided. Paul didn't die for your salvation, nor was anyone baptized in, into Paul. And I think even as he says that, he just begins to roll through the Rolodex of, I, I baptized Crispus and Gaius. I think that's it. Later on, we'll, we'll find out in this letter that Stephanus was there. My sanctified imagination, I just, as Paul is pinning this or, or speaking this and having it pinned, Whichever one, I just imagine Stephanus being like, hey, Paul, remember me? Like, you dunked us too. 
And he's not saying that baptism is not important. But what he's saying is the one who does the baptizing isn't the issue. Beware of any ministry that hypes or calls allegiance to a preacher. And be willing to submit and to follow preachers and pastors who are willing to hold high the cross of Christ and say, not I, but follow hard after him. I pray Covenant Life will continue to be a church that's committed to the ministry of making Jesus known and making Jesus the focus and not any other human leader. Matt McCullough, pastor in Nashville, commented on the Corinthians. He says their divisions, much like ours, was about their branding. The Corinthians tried to attach themselves to anything that was important to them and that would set them apart from others. And he said, that's how pride works. And that's why it's so hard for you to see it in your own life and to uproot it. And we're so creative in what we're proud of. Like we're proud of what we eat or drink or what we don't eat or drink. We're proud of what we know or what we don't know or where we went to school or where our kids go to school or how much money we've saved or how much money that we've spent or what we wear or what we don't wear. Pride shows up in what we don't share with others. Like division comes from pride. And division points to something. I think that's why the question's in verse 13. If you are dividing from another over something that's not pertaining to right doctrine about Jesus then something matters to you more than right doctrine about Jesus. And that's not to say that you should have no convictions or informed opinions about other things outside of doctrine concerning Jesus. But if Christ isn't divided and yet you find yourself divided, then Christ isn't most important to you. Christ isn't the point of your life. You aren't more interested. You aren't most interested in what he's done for you, but on how you can set yourself apart from other people. I think the analogy is helpful. We must be careful not to put on Christ as the base layer. I mean, just think, imagine today that you showed up and you walked in and you sat next to someone who was wearing literally the same shoes, pants, shirt, everything, same, exact same. Like there's something within us that like, oh, how'd this happen? Like, like I didn't... We didn't plan this, and, and this doesn't even really set me apart much. Like, we like to show up and kind of, at some time, just like not be like everybody else. 
And so imagine, same person sets to you, you're completely different everything, but they're wearing the exact same undershirt as you. Are you bothered at that? Probably not. And I think it's tempting to treat Christ like the undershirt. To say Christ is like the base layer, but really what's most important and how I express myself is what I wear on top of that. We don't mind if the guy's wearing the same, same undershirt, but what we put on top of that is where we want to be identified. Like, that's how we want to be different. Like, that's our style. Christ can become, for so many Christians, a starting point, and then we slowly move away from him being the central controlling reality. It can become that we're prone to be more identified with what we put on top of our undershirt than on the fact that we have the same undershirt together. Now that I've said that out loud in this sermon, I hope it was clear. <laughs> For the Corinthians, it wasn't enough just to be identified with Christ. I mean, it's one thing to say, yep, all you need is Jesus. And it's another thing to look at a brother and sister and say, hey, all we have is Christ. Like, that's all we have. He's all my hope and my peace and my righteousness. He's not the base layer for the accessories that are really going to set us apart. No, no, no. He is the unified. He, the most important thing is Christ. Not whatever else we want to put on in addition to Christ. Because in our day, what becomes most important is not Christ, but it's those other things. Like Christ is not a mere accessory for your already good life. Like Christ is essential to having life. And if other people are accessorized in different ways, but they have Christ, it doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation about the accessories, but it does mean that we are, we are deliberately unifying in how we have those conversations. Like, Christ is central. Christian growth from here to glory is going to be getting more and more sensitive to the areas of pride in our hearts. And so just think about the week that you've had. Like, how do you see this playing out in your own life? Like, what cause or what trend or what preference are you prone to identify with more than I'm identifying with Christ? Like, is there a theme that you can pinpoint? Like, I'm pretty good with other Christians on a lot of things, but man, when we begin to talk about blank, like, I really struggle to be united with Christians who believe blank. And let me just remind you, in a day where listening to really good pastors and preachers 
is so accessible because of the internet. I just want to remind you that your favorite preacher didn't save you. Oh, and you should not be divisive about your preference for a preacher compared to another preference of a preacher when those preachers are preaching the same Jesus. Are you in danger of being wrongly divisive? When your fellowship with other Christians is strained over that which isn't primary, like you are so close to being wrongly divided or divisive among the church. And so the most important thing about a church is not what a church thinks about this political party, not what a church thinks about a social issue, though those are important things that a church should have clarity on. The most important thing about a church is what the church thinks of Jesus and how that then informs and changes everything. That leads us to our last point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy. So for those of you that have been struggling over the years with sermon points that didn't, weren't alliterative, you're welcome. Unity, required, division, renounced, the gospel, the remedy. So just listen to how he ends verse 17. The word of the Lord, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I just encourage you to come back, because he is going to double-click on what he means when he says, I came to preach the gospel in a way where the cross of Christ would not be made void. Come back in two weeks as we jump back into this series But the gospel of Christ, the power of the cross, is the answer. I asked earlier, was there any hope for our culture? There is. Is there any hope for the church when divisions begin to market? There is. The antidote to exalting people is exalting Christ. And that's what's been happening since verse 13. Paul has been redirecting their gaze to Christ. I mean, he he begins after recognizing the divisions by saying, listen, I didn't die for you. You weren't baptized into my name. What's he doing? It's not that now they're stumped going, "Well, well, whose name was I baptized in? Like, who died for me? He is intentionally pushing their attention so that their affections would be pushed to consider Christ. There's only one power that can overcome the pride that so naturally comes to us. There's only one power that can unify the church in a way where Paul wants to see this church unified. There's only one power that can overcome the dangers of divisions and even the sources of divisions. There's only one power that can make the cross and the gospel look as glorious as it really is. And it's why Paul, all throughout this letter and all throughout his ministry will fight to keep the cross at the center. And he reminds these Corinthians, this informs everything. Covenant Life Church, the cross has to stay, has to stay central to who we are as a people. The gospel has to, to stay central to who we are. 
Prideful boasting in our leaders and in others will always make us shrivel up and die because we were wired to have our singular boast be in Christ and Him crucified. And what was most important was not the quality of the sermon, but the faithfulness of the sermon. The cross, it's where sinners come for life. The cross, it's the only place that pride can go to die. In the middle of a status-obsessed, competitive city, Paul is praying and longing for a unified church. And when they are unified, he's not interested at all in people thinking, man, Paul did this. Like his concern is rather they would go, the power of the cross has done this. Like this is what, this is the kind of power that's in this gospel message. That the world would look and go, see how the cross has killed the pride and has unified this people. And here's the reality. Every one of us this morning has, we have been ravaged by the condition of heart that does not submit to God. It is the worst of offenses for us to not delight in God. There is no greater offense of us not delighting in God and us not submitting to the power and the authority and the beauty and the majesty of God himself. In fact, all of us think that we know best. And do you know what pride does? It leads us down a path further and further away from God, closer and closer into feeling the full fury of his righteous hatred over everything that is ungodly. And the crazy thing is that you can walk that dangerous path all the while having the approval of this world. Like you can think you're walking the right path because the world cheers you on. The sobering reality is that if you chase the acceptance of others for all of your life, and even if you get it all, it means nothing as you stand as a condemned sinner before a holy and just God. And so I need you to see this morning that your pride is a far more devastating character trait about you than you realize. It is actually keeping you from the God to whom you're accountable to. It's keeping you from bowing the knee to submitting to this God. From trusting and believing in this God alone. How you stack up against God and His law is all that matters. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And when we see the agony and the shame and the death and the wrath, we see that's what we are. We are considering what we deserve for our pride and our sins. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do that can help us stand up and survive against that full fury. And the cross says there's nothing that you can do that is good enough. And yet at the very same time, we look at the cross and we see that there is now a way of escape. 
from such wrath for such proud people. There is hope and protection and forgiveness that's found in what happens upon the cross. And it's offered freely at an infinitely high cost. The cost of the life of God the Son, Jesus the Christ. Where Jesus would take on the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. A penalty that you and I could never repay or afford. And he would raise from the dead to secure the life that we could never achieve. The good news this morning is you may have come in a proud, rebellious sinner. And if you will bow your knee, you can leave a humble, broken child who's loved by this God. I would plead with you. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. Let the good news about Jesus and what he has done for your soul Like, let it fill your gaze again. And you'll find that when we gaze and behold his glory, pride begins to die. And when pride begins to die, divisions begin to crumble. And we find ourselves at the ground level of the cross. There's nothing to boast in there. He not only saves us by his grace, but we live moment to moment by his grace. And the cross of Christ is the key to seeing pride killed and for us to live together in unity. And that matters because the unity of the church is what showcases the power of the gospel. And in fact... The Lord has so seen fit to institute a meal for believers to take together where the unity of the church is made visible even as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're being pointed back to the cross and the bread and the cup. The symbol of a body that was broken and blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And here Christ at the table is renewing his promise to be enough for us. And so when you hold the elements and we get ready to to receive them, you you should think this is Christ's grace. This is his grace saying, I am enough for you. I will nourish you. I will sustain you. I will keep you. And as we eat and drink, We also say to one another, we are under one gospel. We are one in Christ. I mean, Paul would say about this meal, that this is the meal, this is where the one, uh, the many are brought to be one. Like this meal is meant to unite. It's meant to showcase the unity of the blood-bought people of Christ. And so here at Covenant Life, The Lord's Supper is open to baptized believers. Baptism is the initial identification with Christ and his people. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing identification with Christ and his people. And so if if you've not been baptized, we would say, make that. I mean, even read the scriptures. As the gospel goes forth, there is a call, a response. What do I do? I repent and believe. And that's followed next by, I make that public through baptism. 
The place to make that public initially is not here at the table. It's passing through the waters. And so if you've not been baptized and yet you're a Christian, we would encourage you, don't take the supper. And, but think about, why would I not identify with Christ in baptism? The supper is open to baptized believers who are members of a local church who preach the gospel that you heard here this morning. And that's really getting at this question. Is there a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church that would affirm your salvation and would say, yes, they're living in such a way as to where they're invited to come to the table? 